this is a Castlefield Gallery podcast. This is a Castlefield Gallery podcast discussing the exhibition Tale of the Frozen Bits, a solo show of new work by artist Al Morgan. Tale of the Frozen Bits opens at Castlefield Gallery on the 12th of February 2023. The exhibition was selected from proposals submitted by Castlefield Gallery Associate by guest selector Harold Offay, Castlefield Gallery Curator and Deputy Director Matthew Pendergast, and Castlefield Gallery Associates Coordinator Laura Mansfield. In brief, the exhibition explores something of the rich and surprising history of fertility drugs. L. Morgan's work for the show touches on an eclectic array of materials and medical discoveries from nuns' urine to midwife toads and industrial freezers. Across two film works, screen prints and merchandise, Earl crafts a unique take on fertility treatment, bringing to the fore the practical mechanisms that surround having bits of oneself stored and frozen for potential future use. Joining me to talk about the exhibition is the artist herself, L. Morgan, Professor of Clinical Embryology, Daniel Bryson, and Professor of Reproductive Biomedicine, John Aplin, both from the University of Manchester. So I'm going to be asking L, John and Daniel some questions to start us off. But first, um, actually, it'd be great if you could all share a little bit about what you do and how you've come to the field of contemporary fertility medicine. So I started as a chemist and then I became a cell biologist. This is John speaking and became interested in early pregnancy. And I've been researching researching that in Manchester for some decades. Okay. Hi, this is Daniel. So I um, graduated from university in the early 80s with no real clear plan as to what I wanted to do. And I saw an advert in a journal in 1984 for careers in human fertility. So I applied, worked in that field for three years, and then eventually qualified as a clinical embryologist, moved to Manchester later in my career and set up a research program around fertility. And uh, I collaborate with people like John and others. I, I'm an artist and writer, and I, I usually work with animals in some way, usually very small animals. And um, my interest in fertility medicine came about when I was beginning a IVF, uh, I started IVF in 2018. And as a way of dealing with the process, which can be physically and emotionally difficult, I decided to turn it into a project, into an art project. So I wanted to find out what was in these drugs that I was injecting into myself every night. And I discovered there were nuns, nuns urine being collected, or at least historically, hamsters, hamster cells were involved, horses at some point, toads, frogs. And it started there for me. Yeah. And although this is kind of coming from your personal experience, the work, your films and the exhibition have a very particular persona. There's something quite unemotional, uh, slightly detached. And there's a sort of I feel like you're playing on slightly bemused and um, a bit baffled by it all. So I just, I wanted to unpick this a little bit, particularly I think how that persona maybe fosters this blurring of like the medical and technical and then the kind of everyday, like, uh, you know, uh, 
one point the narrative shifts when you're talking about storage space between like oh what other storage space you have access to like oh you've got free storage space in your in your mum's loft but there's this storage here of your stuff and I suppose that sort of crossing over of maybe it's not crossing over but blurring yeah so with this there is so much incredible history and information and I didn't it, it's not my role and it doesn't interest me to inform people of the facts I wouldn't be particularly good at that so this show you're not gonna be able to work out how how to freeze embryos what I wanted to do was stray so it, it, it's about the associations often inappropriate associations that I may have made in relation to these frozen embryos or in relation to fertility and allowing those to come through so that they're kind of things that perhaps come to you in a daydream so for example urine features a lot in the show and for for me urine obviously is is part of the um the way that fertility drugs were developed but it's also I think a lot of us have associations with shame around urine especially as a child or as a teenager it's also related to care so in the film I talk about my mum's catheter bag and there's there's examples in the film of how you how you insert a catheter bag so I wanted to allow all these stories to come in because that's actually how I started making sense of what it is to have um, to be responsible financially and legally for these frozen embryos, which I don't I don't know. I don't know what they look like, you know, and apparently there's something I'm responsible for. So the way I sort of try to make sense of that is to allow these stories to build up around them. And the voice that I use, so my persona, <laughs> I sort of, I guess it's the voice that I might use when I was talking to a, another friend and trying to make them laugh. But I also think it's the voice that women often use with each other when we're trying to be caring. So it, it's sort of like either the voice of the therapist, you know, you kind of go very gentle, or it's the perky voice of the nurse when you're getting your smear test, like pop yourself on the bed for me, you know, everything's fine, don't worry about it, which, which actually when it comes to women's health is often the voice that we hear. It's the idea of just be, just be casual, it's totally fine, you know, don't feel strange about this. So I wanted to allow those voices into the film. And also, I mean, you have a sort of mindfulness voice as well, a woman trying to calm you down and teach you to breathe deeply. So that is, is kind of the voices I hear when I think about women's health, but also the way women try and be caring in their voice. That just immediately makes me think, well, here we are with two clinical practitioners, researchers that are both male. And maybe, I know we didn't say we'd talk about this, but maybe that's, that's quite an interesting thing to now touch on, I think. Like your experience as men in your field so so Elle's interest in the the natural world is Mm. is a great thing for me because I've studied biology Mm -hmm. and I'm interested in the links between biology and medicine you know from a scientific point of view and storage is great because because the frogs just use the pond you know yeah and um, it's it's poignant in the film when you think about how technology has has come into mm-hmm. our 
reproductive practices and, and Ella's storing uh, her her eggs in a uh, liquid nitrogen tank and she's thinking about her mum's attic mm -hmm. meanwhile the frog is leaving its eggs actually in the pond going off mm -hmm. leaving the eggs to do their own thing so there's a different level of maternal investment mm -hmm. in, in in pregnancy in in that species you know compared to viviparous species like the human where you, mm -hmm. you grow your embryos inside you but then there's this new thing coming on through IVF where the eggs sit in a in a in a freezer for a, an unspecified length of time. Mm -hmm. I like that connection because some mammals have a system called embryonic diapause where they can actually delay the onset of pregnancy by months while they hibernate for example and that's effectively what we do in fertility treatment so we take eggs and embryos, freeze them, and you can have an extended early pregnancy of up to 10 years or longer now. That's like mm -hmm. a, it's an equivalent, it's the store of an extension of pregnancy. I mean, you asked specifically about the gender role. I mean, John will know mm -hmm. about the research side. On the clinical side, I've always found it very interesting that the majority of the staff working in IVF clinics are female. So the proportion of embryologists in the UK is probably 70% female. Last time I checked the figures, and many of the medical doctors now, of course, are female. So actually, it's a little bit unrepresentative having two male scientists yeah. here. The gender balance is probably more female, I guess, in the field. And also generally in reproductive biology. In generally in biology. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And to just pick up a bit on um, the, the storage and the freezers, could you maybe talk us through that process of how something is frozen? I, I was interested. Daniel will talk about the this from the IVF side, yeah. but just just to to talk about the, the conversation. Yeah. Because the first, I think the first lady in the fertility clinic uses the word dewa. They're in mm -hmm. a dewa. Well, dewa was a Scottish scientist who was interested in how you could cool things down. And he came up with this idea, and we use it all the time. If you, you know, if you take a, a hot drink on a walk, you're using a dewa flask. Right. And it's it's got two walls, and in between is a vacuum, and so it it means that things will either stay cold or stay hot, accordingly. And so technologically, we've taken things forward to the point where you can have a dewa, which, and I, I don't know whether Elle will realise this, but these dewas are. Uh, kind of huge things, you know, that, that you, you certainly store several hundred eggs Absolutely. in one. Yeah. Um, and then they use the word straw. And it, again, it doesn't really give you much mm -hmm. of a, an idea of what's going on. But the way technology since, oh, I, I don't know, I think Dewar, I think it was back in about 1720, the, uh, the original idea was that nitrogen was a, a component of air. Um, that, you, that wouldn't sustain life and it was identified and then eventually through Dewar's work it was cooled down to a liquid minus 196 degrees centigrade and then people started thinking about how you could slow down biological life by putting it into a freezer you know and keeping it in liquid nitrogen and, and they explain that in stages it's very interesting to hear how the fertility clinic they they pass the they pass the baton don't they to, mm. to people who are a little bit more informed yeah so this yeah. is one particular film work in the exhibition where Elle has recorded calling up the fertility clinic where her embryos are stored and asking some simple questions about checking on the freezers and um she gets passed from 
maybe three or four people until you obviously are then in conversation with an embryologist who is giving much more detailed information about these terms and what mm-hmm. yeah and they grow in confidence as I'm handed from one to the next yeah so I think the receptionist is a bit like oh my god <laughs> let's get rid of this person <laughs> I think they also were trying to find out exactly what kind of information you wanted as well. Mm-hmm. So familiar with that system, I think that was the idea, you know, what you wanted to know. When they found that it was technical, then you got to the technical person, if you mm-hmm. like, that's a way of processing the information. And are these conversations, do, are these questions that are asked ever, like in your experience of, of treatment yeah, by no, couples? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean... Couples often want to know, women want to know, men want to know about sperm storage. In particular, they want to know how the tissue, for want of a better word, the eggs or embryos of sperm were frozen. They're interested in the procedure, technically, what the risk is, of course, the risk of them not surviving the freezing process, the chemicals used in the freezing, people are often interested in that. And then the question that the embryologist answered in your film, although I'm not sure you asked, was about the length of storage, People are often interested in whether cells survive over one year, 10 year, 20 year, 50 years of storage. So the answer they gave was, you know, completely appropriate that once the cells, for want of a better word, are frozen, then that's the risk period over. The length of time they're stored in liquid nitrogen doesn't increase the risk. The next risk comes when they're thawed out, of course. So those are the kind of things people usually ask. Mm -hmm. And so what is the risk going into the freezing and then the defrosting? So the risks are similar to freezing any type of material. So as John mentioned, cryobiology has been around as an academic pursuit for hundreds of years. And there's actually a society for low temperature biology, an academic society full of people who study this for as an academic pursuit. So the risks with freezing are that if you just pop your sperm, egg or embryos directly into liquid nitrogen at very low temperature, then ice crystals form. And when you thaw the tissue out, then the ice crystals effectively kill the cells. So mm-hmm. strawberries, for example, are a classic example of a fruit which you can't freeze because when you thaw it out, it just turns to mush because the ice crystal completely destroy the structure. So for human tissues, we use things called cryoprotectants, which is getting too technical, but it's a chemical which effectively dehydrates, takes the water out of the sperm egg or embryos, so it makes it possible to freeze them. Then when they're frozen, it's relatively safe or it is safe. Then when they're thawed out, you have to then remove those chemicals and allow the water to go slowly back into the egg or embryo. So it expands slowly and survives the freeze thawing. So it's a very nicely controlled process. And the success rates, you know, probably 80, 90 percent. And something I also wanted to ask was so you mentioned this almost chemical treatment of the embryo before the freezing. And I know enough prior conversations we spoke about something called embryo glue and um just thinking about materials that come through in l's work and there's the urine and there's the frogs and then l previously did a project around stickiness it is an ongoing um, it's a it's a lifelong project and interest in stickiness um, I should say I, I I was very excited to ask about embryo glue when we met previously, and I think we're about to discover it's not really glue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's about to be revealed. 
Well, I can, so John is a, an expert on stickiness, so he can tell you a bit about glue. Just from a clinical point of view, we do use embryo glue clinically, and I do think it works. The evidence suggests that it does increase success rates um, slightly, so I think it's worth using. We certainly use it clinically, and we've done a number of research projects trying to discover how it works. We don't have the final answer yet, but... Um, Sure, John has <laughs> ideas so, to add to that. It might be good to explain just a little bit, like what what is this? Not what it is necessarily chemically, but how it is used and why it is used. Okay, so clinically, the embryos are grown in the IVF lab in a, a solution we call a culture medium or culture solution, and they're left in that solution to grow and develop in the incubator. At the point they're transferred back into the woman's womb. They can go in that same solution, which is fine, or they can be transferred into this, what they call transfer solution, which is what they sit in, the liquid they sit in when they go in the catheter, and which we then use to slowly inject them into the woman's womb through the cervix. So some clinics have developed, or a company has developed this culture solution for transfer called embryo glue. And it's essentially the same culture solution the embryos live in the incubator, but with a chemical added called hyaluronate, hyaluronic acid, which is an extracellular matrix molecule that's found all over the body. It's relatively safe and benign, and it is thought to act as a, a sticky molecule, if you like. So that's the idea behind it. And it does seem to work, say, clinically. But probably not by helping the embryo to stick, as far as, okay. as, far as we know. So no. we've jumped really to the forefront of research now. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it turns out that when you transfer an embryo, it doesn't always implant. And this is something that has puzzled people in the field ever since the very beginning of, of IVF, because most animals do it efficiently, and humans turn out to be rather inefficient mm -hmm. at implanting their embryos. Probably about a quarter of them or a third of them implant. And it would oh, be... so it's that, <clears throat> a quarter or a third not in IVF, but in terms of natural... We think so. Okay. We think so. I mean, it's difficult, of course, to, yeah. to know what's going on in, in, in um, natural reproduction, but that seems likely from what we know. And so I suppose this has led to an idea that perhaps you could put a gluey substance in alongside the embryos and, and, and help that process. It remains a, a great idea. The embryo glue that we've just been talking about and was devised with that in mind. And it does seem to be helpful, but we don't think it's helping by making embryo stick better. It's mm -hmm. doing something else, and we're not sure what that something else is. It seems to be stimulating the embryo in a phase that shortly precedes the actual sticking of the embryo onto the surface of, of the, the womb. Perhaps it's helping, helping the embryo to make its own sticky molecules, for example. Mm -hmm. but we don't really know. This makes me think... Is this something that is also used in like organ transplants as they're this idea of stickiness or the kind of chemicals to help the body accept the sort of foreign object, I even think, though it's of the body? I, th I think the nearest parallel for me would not be organ transplantation so much as perhaps wound healing. Okay. Where you can, you can help the wound if you've got a, a cut, um, an abrasion or post-surgically even, you can help the wound to heal by using 
a manufactured material that contains sticky substances mm -hmm. that helps the cells to bind and contract and repair you know the damaged area which historically would have been this links back to your work l would be spider yeah. yeah one of my large areas of research is in into spider silk the human uses of spider silk and of course um, one of the first human uses was as a way to help heal wounds and spiderweb has antibacterial properties that help that to happen and of course now there's a lot of research in attempting to make synthetic spider silk to repair tendons but again yes a sort of sticky substance which for some reason the human body accepts and doesn't reject spider silk the other important variable in this equation is of course the surface of the wound and we know that you have to replace embryos at a specific time so people sometimes call it the window we're still short of a full characterization of stickiness in relation to the surface of the womb um, there's a, a family of commercial tests that are available and are offered to women in, uh, in fertility clinics to try to well, trying to move towards a situation where you tailor the timing so that the embryo is in the right stage and the, and the mum's womb is in, in, in the right stage. Uh, but the tests at the moment work very poorly, mm -hmm. if at all. And so we're still trying to work out exactly what it is that makes the womb receptive. And that, actually, you've touched on something that I wanted to raise, was this idea of these, all these almost extras around the fertility treatment that are presented to mothers to help that things that might potentially possibly help. And I just wanted to, yeah, if you so say the, a bit about that. So these are the famous add-ons, they call them. So until recently, I was a member of the HFEA, Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority Scientific Committee. So we used to sit and look at the evidence for all the different add-ons available and we would grade them by traffic light. So the ones we thought had good evidence had a green traffic light, intermediate yellow, and the ones we didn't think were effective were red. And that was um, system was designed for public access for patients to look at in the public. So it's a very simple system. And embryo glue, I think, ended up with yellow, possibly green, and one or two other were green, but the rest were all either yellow or red. In other words, these add-ons don't have much evidence to support them. So evidence from clinical studies showing effectiveness. And so they could include things like um, PGT, which is screening of embryos for aneuploidy. They could include things like immune therapy. And you've already touched a couple of times on the fact that the human body rejects foreign substances. And of course, one of the great mysteries in reproductive biology is why the woman's body doesn't reject the embryo, because of course the embryo is half male. It has half foreign proteins on the surface, maybe not half, but certainly shows them. So there are therapies to suppress the immune system, which are, you know, claimed to be effective, which may not be. There are a number of add-ons which really have very little evidence. And I think one thing we're quite concerned about in the UK is that people are, you know, not offered these things without sufficient evidence behind them. Because mm -hmm. they are expensive, of course, and time-consuming and emotionally difficult if they don't work of course yeah and so just to clarify that's um often 
correct me if I'm wrong in this, like the NHS might outsource fertility IVF to a private clinic, but then that private clinic will offer the patient these additional bits of treatment that are supposedly going to help or guarantee it working. And I th- like you said, Daniel, I think that's a really difficult and problematic, like ethically very problematic. I think what comes through from what Daniel has said is that you can make a very logical, coherent case for a test that might tell you whether the embryo is genetically normal, Mm -hmm. for example, or for whether the mum's womb is at the receptive stage. It's easy to make that case. And of course, people are vulnerable because Mm. it's such a stressful time and Often women are getting older and, you know, they feel the pressure of their circumstances. Can I just, well, I I just wanted to come in there on the add-ons and um, the the sort of emotional effect of those. So I did decide to have some add-ons. I was going through the NHS, but as Laura said, it was a private clinic. I decided on the embryo glue, which sounds like does have evidence that it would work. But I also paid for basically what what seems to be a video of the early, the first few days of the cell splitting, which I now have. So I have this this video of two cells splitting. And I showed it to you, Laura, and I went a few weeks ago. Now, I think in relation to the the exhibition and, and in relation to my relationship with these frozen embryos, once you have a visual of these things, it creates an emotional link. And although my exhibition doesn't doesn't so much focus on the IVF process, it certainly is not about motherhood or parenting or anything. It's about the strangeness of being responsible for these frozen things. This part of the fertility process often isn't focused on very much. Your whole focus is, I want this to work and, and dealing with the pressure of that. What, because one of these add-ons has a visual to it, it creates this emotional bond that is very difficult to deal with when you're trying to make a decision about what to do with storage. Because they're not, you know, I certainly don't think of them as being either alive or dead, but these very strange things that are almost like sci-fi, which I am responsible for. So, yes, I think that's that's to do with the kind of emotive effects of what it means if you have a visual of these things. And how you're meant to deal with that as an individual. And certainly the my approach for the exhibition is to try and move away from the idea of it being the responsibility of the woman. And let's look at all the other humans and non-humans who are involved in creating these things and sustaining these things. And to try and kind of, yeah, broaden the story and include other stories as well. So, so that I think it makes it easier to deal with as a human rather than as a sort of science fiction, which is is very difficult to deal with. When you look at cells and embryos under the microscope, you have a feeling this is biology at work. And and, and I think that link, even as a scientist looking at it, you know, you feel that there's, we are doing something here. We are giving these embryos, whatever the nutrients and environmental conditions they need to do their to develop, you know, at least 
you know, for those few days that the, that the recording has been made. And it, it gives you some degree of confidence that things are happening. And, um, and I absolutely get that point from, from a male's standpoint, that it does begin a relationship, you know, even if we're just growing cells for other purposes in the lab. I always look at my students in terms of what is the relationship they have with these cells, because the students who love their cells do well. That's a really interesting point, because professionally, as an embryologist, you know, we think human embryos are beautiful. So Bob Edwards, one of the IVF pioneers, famously wrote in his notebooks that the embryos that he first saw down the microscope, he thought were absolutely beautiful. His notebooks are in the British Library or were on exhibition, so you can see them. And as an embryologist, I feel exactly the same way. We look at these cells, we see them dividing, and we think they're absolutely beautiful. So to us, it makes complete sense that a patient, a couple, a woman, a man would want the video of the early stages of their baby because they are they are beautiful and emotive. The, the, the video you were given or sold, it's very interesting because that comes from something called time-lapse incubators. So these are incubators where the embryo goes in on day one and it can stay there until day five for five days undisturbed without being removed. And that's possible because the incubators have cameras in, which mean the embryologist can look at the embryo without opening the door or taking them out. So it's now considered to be the gold standard for incubators for human embryos to live in. So that's why they have access to the videos. And I guess many clinics now don't really want to charge people extra for that incubator because they're standard. So perhaps they just, I don't know, perhaps they sell the videos instead. Perhaps that's what the idea is, I'm okay. not sure. But certainly it does mean that if you have that video, it means that your embryos will grow in, in a time-lapse or a video incubator, which is, I would say, a good thing. A good thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, well, it's interesting how, how private clinics make some extra money if it's an NHS-funded process. But also, I think partly because of that video, it's very difficult to know what to do with these embryos other than just continue paying for that storage because I have a video. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but have they just previously the storage, legal storage time for frozen embryos was 10 years and with COVID it went to 12 years and now it's 55 years. Please explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I will be almost certainly dead by that point. Yeah. It is, it's, it's a bit difficult to explain. So this was a decision made by Parliament and passed on to the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority to implement and they in turn passed it on to clinics. And it has required quite a lot of organization. I think the guiding principle was that there was no particular reason why storage of an embryo should be limited to 10 years. There's no biological reason. There's no evidence that after 10 years they would deteriorate. And in some cases, I think Parliament felt that there was this is an unnecessary restriction. So they decided to change it to 55 years maximum. However, there's still a process in place to renew storage every 10 years, I believe. So it's not as if you would go for treatment, sign up, and then be committed to 55 years. You kind of renew every five or 10 years still. So I think it's really just the end point that's been relaxed. And I guess it's a mixture of ethical and practical reasons, really. There was no practical reason for the 10-year deadline. And so this is like just a what-if question. If that's the case, what happens if the mother dies and the embryos are still in storage? 
what's the procedure around that? There are very specific consent forms in place, and there have been a number of very high-profile court cases over the last couple of decades where the consent forms were not filled out explicitly, and mm -hmm. so uh, things went to the court went to court cases. So the consent forms will allow that provision. So posthumous use, it's called. So the woman, for example, can get permission for her husband or partner to use the embryos with somebody else after their death. That has to be given specifically. They can give specific consent for another family member, for example. So that is all covered if the consents are taken correctly. Mm -hmm. And now they are, but in the past, it's been a little bit vague, hence the court cases. Wow. And so is everything covered in that consent form? Like, well, if your relationship breaks down, if the rights over those legal responsibilities, which Elle is talking about, over these it, things? It should be. I've never been responsible for patient consents personally, but it should be. Yes. Yes. I th I'm trying to remember what I've signed now. <laughs> need to dig those out yeah it's a bit like making a will i'm afraid i mean i can't remember what's in my will you know i don't you know we don't all remember what we sign up for mm -hmm. um i just want to return to something you picked up on like you both sort of said that this the human embryo is is beautiful and this process is like a beautiful thing and like john you said it's biology at work so for you you're connection to it is that is like the joy and the awe of life it is. reproducing but for the mother it's the promise of this future potential isn't it it is and i i again i, I understand what i was saying because <clears throat> scientifically the measurements that come out of those films are not proving to be particularly useful mm -hmm. in terms of predicting whether an embryo once transferred is going to give you a pregnancy. And so you're getting a, a, a hint of what might be, you know, but yeah. it may not come about. I think the, the issue of potential is so important in lots of contexts, so particularly for cancer treatment. So we've had a program running for quite a long time now where women can come if they've had a cancer diagnosis and freeze eggs and in the past um, small pieces of the ovary and freeze them for an extended period of time. And, I always felt with many of these women that it was more the possibility of a family life after cancer treatment that was important to them, not so much whether it you know worked, quote unquote, afterwards, mm -hmm. but the fact that they were able to preserve something of their body and their reproductive potential before they underwent these really difficult cancer treatments. Well, so that not everything is taken away from you yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Which, of course, that idea of... Um, choice then is something that is sort of taken away a bit or the 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 decisions around becoming pregnant or it was a completely different experience to there's no doubt that the technology has expanded choice yeah to the extent that you can become pregnant in your 60s with the right hormonal yeah. treatments you know i mean it's it, it's not commonly done but it's a possibility if you're having chemotherapy for a cancer and and there's the strong possibility that the chemicals are going to damage your eggs. You can have some parts of the ovary stored in frozen form and then replaced. So, you know, these are great, mm -hmm. great advances in terms of giving people the possibility to have a family later on. And I could imagine when you both started your careers, like, did you see the world ending up this way? Could you see that, did you know it was 
sort of going to be possible? Because it must have been quite an exciting moment to per enter the field. Personally, when I started in 1984, that was just around the time that, for example, embryo freezing became available. So the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was born in 1978. So 84 was only six years later. But even by then, I think the first frozen embryo baby had been born. So actually, the kind of technologies we're talking about were in place even then. Actually, they haven't really changed radically. What's changed is the ethical oversight and the regulation. You know, back in the 80s, there was no mandatory regulation in the UK. There was relatively little ethical oversight, but there was a lot of controversy with the treatments in the 80s. So what we have now is we have a much more settled kind of ethical oversight and regulation that everybody accepts and works very well, I think. But I don't think the technology has changed fundamentally. We're still doing pretty much the same thing we were doing in the 80s, just better and more efficiently. Our understanding of the science has changed, though, changed quite a bit, probably since you came into the field, John, also. And of course, we're we're now growing a, a generation of, of IVF individuals. Louise Brown is 43, I think, yeah. now. So we're still in a position where we don't know what they're lifelong potentials are mm. and of course the numbers are now what eight or nine million in the world and rapidly growing so, so there are sociological and medical issues around this that are way beyond anything i imagined when i started yeah. <laughs> i think I, I think what it's opened up for what what it's made possible is extraordinary. It's opened up these possible ways of conceiving that weren't that weren't possible before. But I, I think it's also, and I guess this relates to the film Ghosting in the exhibition, because it opens up all these different ways that your life may come out, but you have no certainty. It is like being haunted by potential other lives, which of course we all have, you know, how life could go one way or the other. But there is something about the ability to freeze eggs or freeze embryos that both, both allows you these options, but also almost gives you control of things that you didn't have control of before, or at least gives you the feeling that you have control. And in a way, the work I've been making is to try and explore these, yeah, explore these hauntings, the way that it feels a bit like a strange dream that doesn't quite make sense, a parallel life. Maybe that's a really lovely thing to end on, these hauntings. Unless there's anything, John or Daniel, you'd, you'd like to add or ask, Al. I would love to have talked about urine, but we would you? <laughs> 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 totally happy to talk about happy urine. Happy to go and talk about urine. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about urine? So the urine features a lot in the exhibition. There's a lot of mention of urine and the colour of yellow kind of permeates a lot of the work. And the T-shirt is a bright yes. yellow colour. The lettering on the T-shirt is definitely yeah. a... Concentrated, isn't it? Yeah, concentrated. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, the 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 thing that came to me actually watching the film was the the resourcefulness and ingenuity of the scientists in, in those days. That it's a peculiarity of evolution that when you inject urine into frogs, you know they ovulate, and of course the frog is convenient because you see those eggs yeah. as they emerge. 
And that is all about a signal that the embryo sends in mammals, this is, embryo sends to, to mum to say, I'm here. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that this the same hormone that, that carries that message will make frogs ovulate, even though the frog is so far away from us mm -hmm. in evolution. And so they came up with this very useful and convenient animal model. And at the same time, they had to find a lot of a lot of urine. And it turned out that you could find a similar hormonal activity in the urine of women who are not pregnant. And this had this has all been worked out in much in great detail. Uh, so the 20th century was a time when hormones were isolated and identified and characterized and made in large quantities. But in those days, you know, they persuaded the, the convents to give up their urine and, you know, got around mm -hmm. things. And, and, and they, there was a strong suspicion there must be a hormone there. And it all came together in the lab through initially using urine and then purifying the, the active components. Mm. I like the fact that, you know, what, what we regard as a waste product and, and slightly kind of disgusting waste product mm. actually turned out to be a, a really valuable source of a, of a hormone or a molecule that actually has become quite important in reproduction. I think that's a nice connection. I think yeah. the, the, the nun's urine, so this was in the, in the 50s, 60s, it wasn't from convents, it was from care homes, convent care homes, so it was older nuns, older women, yeah. women. Um, and the reason they were able to collect them from the nuns is that the drug company who did it was part owned by the Pope's nephew. So it isn't that there's something particularly magical about nuns' urine, although there was the idea that they felt that nuns were less likely to be pregnant than, you know, they had somehow thought that, um, but uh, that's that's how they were able to order the nuns to donate their urine, basically. Now, at the time, it was all to do with helping married women who were having fertility problems to conceive, and it was obviously post-war, trying to you know up the populations. What I find interesting is, although it began with that, IVF is certainly not supported by the Catholic Church now, ever. So yet it still began with, with this donation from nuns and this order from linked to, to the Vatican. Has it made you less squeamish about urine and the like? <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm so not squeamish about urine. I mean... Because science does that to us. You yeah. know, we just <laughs> about it. Well, I think one of the things, you know, with... I think women's health and the experience of, um, I'm not talking about fertility treatment, I'm talking about from dot really, teenageness, is as a woman you're taught that, oh, you've got to look after your body and you have to go to the doctor a lot and this is what it means to have a have have this body is, is that you have to look after it in a certain way and be matter of fact about sharing that with nurses and doctors and, and it means that you've kind of got this double way of thinking you have to both be a patient be trusting with doctors and nurses and allow them to do what they say they have to do but you also are taught to kind of feel 
potentially ashamed of everything that the body might do. So you have to look after it in these two ways. And I think that's to go back to what Laura is asking about the the narrative voice that I'm using in the video. It's something to do with that, I think. It's it's how, you know, even that in one part of the film, I have the voice of a therapist telling the story of my dad making me wee in a co-op bag in the back of the car because he wouldn't stop. And, um, you know, for, obviously this is a, a kind of family story because, you know, my sisters were in the car, but it's also something I felt so ashamed of as a kid that I would, you know, there's no way I would have shared that, certainly not as a teenager. And, you know, even in my 20s, it would just be like, oh, I can't tell people about these things. I think maybe by this age, you're just like, oh, my goodness, everyone. Oh, it turns out everyone has similar experiences of, of the body kind of leaking out, especially if if you have a body that leaks in various ways, you know. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So the exhibition opens on the 12th of February and continues to the 12th of March. If you'd like to find out more about it and the programme of events, exploring the themes within Elle's work, you can visit the Castlefield Gallery website, which is castlefieldgallery.co.uk. And if you'd like to find out more about fertility treatment, the website of the UK regulator, the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, is a good place to start, which is hfea.gov.uk and also Fertility Network UK, which is fertilitynetworkuk.org. Thank you. Thank you.